Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 180. Have you moved through the fundamentals of Python and are now considering building a more extensive project or complete application? Where can you study the architecture of existing Python projects and learn best practices? Christopher Trudeau is back on the show this week, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We discuss a set of resources developers can study to learn how to structure projects. The collection was shared in a blog post titled, Great Resources a Beginner Might Not Find So Easily. It includes a pair of books on the architecture of large software applications and another aimed at more modest projects. We consider when you should use Lambda expressions in your Python code. These one-line expressions create anonymous functions. How do they differ from standard functions and where is it appropriate to use them? We also share several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a couple of release announcements, how Python is a compiled language, a discussion covering the controversy about the recent release of Flask, a project for writing less Selenium code, and a project to create ASCII art with Python. This episode is brought to you by Site247. Site247 is an AI-powered, full-stack monitoring platform by Zoho Corp. Site247 helps developers optimize their application performance and deliver a smooth digital experience. Check out site247.com. That's S-I-T-E-2-4-X-7.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back on the show. Yeah, happy November. I can't believe it already. Yeah, yeah, we're racing into the holidays at full <laughs> at full speed. Um, you got a few pieces of news though that we can kind of start yep. with. Yeah. Yep. You did such a good last time. Good job last time. I'm taking it over. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the <laughs> amount of applause I got. Was <laughs> there is. I've never had applause. <laughs> I've never had applause. It's my button, but I've never used it for myself. Uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we got a few things. Uh, the first is a call for papers for PyCon US 2024. Uh, the conference next year is in Pittsburgh from May 15th to the 23rd. And there's some travel grants available for speakers if you're thinking about that. I couldn't find a due date on the site, so it probably depends on how quickly they get responses. But if you're interested in talking next year, that's what you need. Go click the link and uh, fill in those forms. Yeah. Got two bits of Django news, both release announcements. First off, Django 5 has gone to beta. The, they were in alpha, now they're in beta. That's how it works. Uh, and uh, just the other day, they released a security release. So that's 3.2.23, 4.1.13, and 4.2.7. The fix has to do with a potential denial of service vulnerability in the username field on Windows. So if you're running Django, uh, particularly in a Windows environment, Go patch. Yeah. And then finally, it's sort of news, maybe just news to me. I don't know. For those who've been using Rough the Linter, 
code formatting has been added to its capabilities. So now it lints and reformats code. The current style is mostly adherent with the black formatter, but it does have the added goodness that you can configure whether or not to use single quotes or not. So the tab versus spaces war can continue. Uh, and uh, as <laughs> okay. it is uh, rough, it's built in Rust, which means it's pretty snappy. Yeah, I came across this info on Mike Driscoll's site where he's got a short post with some examples, including how to configure that single quote thing in case you want to, Okay, which is why I'm looking forward to it because I've always thought, hey, the REPL uses single quotes. They're good enough for anybody. Right. And I don't have to hit shift. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that was a quick news roundup. That takes us right into our topics this week. And my first one is from Trey Hunter, who we've mentioned several times on the show. He has a blog uh, and sort of whole training site called Python Morsels. This one is titled, What are Lambda Expressions? Some real quick terminology. A Lambda expression defines a Lambda function, which sounds kind of weird. You might hear one thing called the other, what, what, what have you. The Python docs actually do, and I'll include a link to that, they have a very short entry about lambdas. <laughs> it's in the expressions section of the docs. I'll just read it. It's lambda expressions, sometimes called lambda forms, are used to create anonymous functions. The expression, and this is how they're usually written, is you write the word lambda, L-A-M-B-D-A, and then space the parameters you want, a colon, and then an expression. And in the expression, you'd use those parameters. This is going to yield a function object that returns what comes out of that expression. The unnamed object behaves like a function object defined using the def keyword. In that case, def and then lambda and then the parameters, you know, in parentheses, and then you would have colon and on the next line, you'd have return expression, whereas a lambda is all in line together. What I thought was interesting about it, you get a couple things from that whole thing there that these are nameless functions, they're anonymous. They're defined on a single line. They mention a couple things there that you, you can't have any statements inside this function, so you can't define additional things or any kind of annotations. We have a really long, detailed, <laughs> real Python-style article on lambdas, and in this case, that one is by Andre Bugar, and he it's titled How to Use Python Lambda Functions. It's kind of interesting. He actually digs into the history of it. And uh, he has like this Wikipedia link, you know, mentioning that it goes back to the 1930s, this sort of mathematical concept of, of lambdas and where the symbol comes from and how it all kind of ties in there. Kind of going back to Trey's post, he initially shows how lambda expressions define functions. And then what's really interesting is that he does that by assigning it to a variable's name. So he creates one just called square square equals lambda n colon and then n star star two in this case. So that's, it's basically squaring the, the value n in that case. So if you then were to type the word square inside of a REPL, it would actually return saying this is a function, a function lambda. Or if you were to type and use the built-in type function and put type and then in parentheses square, it would actually return class as a function. They're definitely functions. Why write in this form and how do you want to use it? The most common use I've seen is using it in something like a built-in function, like there's one called sorted. And the sorted function you know, allows you to sort iterables 
in it has a default way of doing that it does it in ascending order but there is a key argument that you can have and the key actually allows you to put in a function or if you will a callable so we've talked about callables and functions and kind of the 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 two be- between each other so you could use like the built-in len function so maybe you're sorting a set of words and instead of having it sort them in an alphabetical fashion you could say, oh, I wanted to do it by the length of the strings. So it kind of goes into that a little bit. And in that key, you could actually put in a lambda that he uses an example of a dictionary, and he wants to not sort by the by the key, but instead by the value. And so in that particular one, the lambda looks like lambda item colon item, and then in square brackets one. And so in this case, it's then going to be sorting by the value as opposed to the key, which is kind of interesting. There's limitations to them. He adds a whole sort of pros and cons list. Nice things that they're you know very quick to do. You don't need to create this separate variable for them. Problems, they can't have a name. <laughs> they don't have a doc string. You're using different syntax from you know the usual def syntax. And where do I see lambdas being used? These sort of short anonymous functions. I see them used a lot in data science, especially Jupyter Notebooks. Things like uh, wrangling pandas data frames, uh, like applying a function to a specific column or something like that. I think it's an interesting, again, quick tour of what lambdas are. I'll include links to the expressions section of the Python documentation that gives that short call out there. And then um, we have a really deep dive, of course, real Python here uh, about how to use them again, from Andre, if you're interested in digging into them. Do you have other uses for lambdas, Chris? Do you use them in other places? It's funny. I was just going to ask you the same thing. I find, I use them occasionally with a little bit of this sort of the functional programming corner of Python. So like the sorted example is is kind of the primary one where it happens. Yeah. Or uh, what's the other one that's really common? Maps Um, and reduce kind of. Mapping and reduce, yeah. yeah. We're applying this little function to something. Yeah, I find uh, every once in a while I'll have that, oh, that'll be a perfect lambda. And then like an hour later, I've gone, oh, that lambda needs a conditional in it. And therefore, it's a, now it's a function. Uh, so I, I find they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're not very long lived in my code unless it's something like a sort key. Uh, so and I think that's the intent behind them. It's I don't yeah. that's not a criticism. But yeah, I think that's about the only place that I tend to use them commonly. Um, but I, I'm not a data science guy, right? So I, I don't spend as much time in that space. And and I could see, particularly if you're doing functional pieces with things like reduce, where they'd be very, very useful. Yeah, the the idea that you're not wanting sort of side effects, you're just applying these things and going into it. So yeah, I was going to say that the filter, map, reduce, those are really common places you'll see it, especially, again, in, in data science-y kind of stuff. A lot of cleaning and sort of wrangling data is where I see it used a lot. In almost every other circumstance, it just kind of makes sense to maybe fully flush it out because you may reuse it. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I also, I'm left with the impression, and I could be wrong about this, but I I think lambdas tend to be far more efficient. Like there's a lot less overhead than functions. Um, So if you are doing something that's small, like passing it into sort, even though sort will support a function, there there can be a big performance gain in some cases by using it. But, you know, that's one of those statements you should always put asterisks beside because you're, you know, (laughs) your situation (laughs) might be different. So, yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Mileage may vary. <laughs> exactly. Are you a developer striving for top-notch application performance? Meet your new ally, Site 24-7 from Zoho Corp. With Site 24-7, you get real-time insights into critical performance metrics like app deck scores, response times, and throughput. It's your secret weapon to swiftly identify performance bottlenecks and issues that can slow down your applications and affect the digital experience for your customers. Optimize your application's performance like a pro with Site24.7's AI-powered full-stack monitoring platform. For more information, visit Site24.7.com. Don't forget to try their 30-day free trial. That's S-I-T-E-2-4-X-7.com. So uh, what's your first topic? Uh, this is an article called Python is a Compiled Language, and it's by Eddie Antonio. Eddie is a researcher at University College Dublin, but by the looks of his .ca extension on the blog, he's a fellow Canuck. So uh, he teaches uh. programming languages, and that's uh, what led him to the post. He starts by talking about, uh, should I hit the OU harder on that just to drive the stereo? Canadian stereotype harm, um, eh? Anyways. Uh, anyways, he <laughs> yes. starts by talking about uh, how he was putting together examples of errors in C, Python, and Java, and using them to teach students how the different languages turn code into something that can run. So when you think of a traditional compiled language like C, you break the compilation into a series of steps. There's pre-processing, lexical analysis, syntactic analysis, semantic analysis, and then linking. And each stage has its own kinds of errors, and typically encountering an error at any one of those stages stops the process from continuing to the following stage. So while adapting the lesson for Python and Java, it became a little, he became a little more aware of how these languages are different. So neither Python nor Java have a pre-processing stage, and linking is sort of there, but sort of not, depending on how you hold your head and squint, because it's it's different in a dynamic language. The key premise of the blog post is that error messages in a language can help reveal the stages in this process. Because certain kinds of errors stop the process from happening at a different step, compiling code with the right set of errors gives you hints about how the process works. So he goes on to use this sort of game show voice, or seeing as it's an article, I'm guessing it's a game show voice by the number of exclamation marks he's got in the title. Yeah. And he introduces a very broken program with four different errors in it. And your task is to guess which problem will trigger an error in what <laughs> order. What stops where? <laughs> exactly. So uh, before getting into the answer, there's a deeper conversation in the article about what it means to be a compiled language. So Python gets compiled into bytecode, which then gets interpreted. As such, you could argue that it's a compiled language. But we usually reserve the term compiled language for something like C that actually builds a machine code executable. Right. By contrast, there's versions of BASIC that don't have the compilation step at all. They interpret directly. So Python's kind of halfway between the two, and that's kind of the argument he's making. So I'm not going to get into the actual programming errors because it's kind of fun to go through and you know t take a guess and see if you understand. Yeah, I like the little uh, drum roll icon, dot dot dot, and then scroll. <laughs> exactly. You know, play the game, and it sort of you know helps you learn the truth about some of the deeper insights into how Python works and how the compilation process goes. So. 
pretty decent article. I'm, I'm looking forward to more stuff from Eddie. And uh, hey, man, if you're listening, good luck on that PhD. Pile higher and deeper. <laughs> nice. Okay, so that brings me to my next topic, which this topic I've, I've talked about a handful of times, and it maybe it's, it is time to dig it up again and, and dive into it. I think it's fairly timeless uh, to, to think about, but the title of it is Great Resources a Beginner Might not find so easily. Something that <laughs> actually uh, Christopher and I have talked a little bit about. I feel that this article is hitting close to what I think is the core part of our audience. And I feel like the core part of our audience is advanced beginners. I like to call them intermediate developers. Um, I think in some ways you would hope for larger, <laughs> more like experts kind of following along and so forth. But I feel like a lot of people that listen to podcasts are interested in, and, and definitely the way that I kind of gear the conversations and kind of ask lots of questions. And I, I really want to lift people up who might be in that kind of middle stage where they're still kind of learning what the next step is. So this is an article, it's a very short read with a bunch of links to useful resources. And it comes from a blog called Death and Gravity. It's by Adrian. The last name's not provided. And Death and Gravity is a really nice blog. I, I'm really kind of enjoying stuff that's in it. The goal of it is that you've learned the basics and you've solved some of your own problems and maybe you've written some scripts and maybe you've kind of started to think about, okay, I, I really would like to make a larger project. Uh-oh. Uh, well, how do you structure a project? <laughs> uh, maybe you get halfway through and then you kind of think, okay, well, where, where, what do I do? Like, how do I structure modules? How do I, what code goes where? How, you know, uh, should this thing be laid out in an entire package? How things should be organized? Let alone more advanced things like documentation or just even generally like sharing this stuff later. So it gets into architecture and design patterns, which I feel like Christopher has definitely shared a bunch of stuff on over the last uh, several of our shows and this one really is focusing not only on that but more on architecturally you might think well how did other people solve this before you tried to the suggestion that a lot of people follow is just okay go read some code and i've talked about this on the show and again it was a focus very early on in the show like episode nine i had this whole thing about leveling up your python literacy i was talking to cecil phillip and Let's find some Python projects to study and look at. I also, this particular pair of books is something that David Amos and I linked to back in episode 62 when we talked about something very similar. It's a link to a set of books called The Architecture of Open Source Applications. It's a, a pair of books, they're free, and they really dig into this concept. They do that by showing you how these projects are organized, about a quarter of them are literally about Python projects. You may remember some of these, or have heard these names, SQL Alchemy, PyPy, Twisted, Matplotlib, Mercurial. And so even though this book has been written a little while ago, I, I don't feel like architecturally these things have gone out of style. There's still a lot of really great stuff you can learn by studying people's code and how they're organizing it and the architecture. And that's really what this blog post is kind of diving into. And then what's kind of cool is he digs into a couple additional things at the end. Uh, another book that is 
I guess, kind of can consider inside that series, which is titled 500 Lines or Less. And the idea of that book is that it addresses the sort of smaller purpose-made projects, things that are maybe not as big as SQL Alchemy, and then their design philosophy. And half of that book is in Python. One other very interesting project that's included in his set of links is a, a set of stuff about Jinja. He mentions that the 500 lines or less book has stuff about template engines. And so he decided to include this stuff about Jinja, which is probably the most used template engine, especially for Python. It's used both in Flask and Django, if you're not familiar with it. Um, it's part of the Palettes project. We're going to mention Armin Ronacher's name a little bit more here in a minute. He links to not only the project and all of the Palettes projects, but Armin Actually, I had him on the show uh, very early on the show, uh, episode 18. We talked about the sort of the 10-year anniversary of Flask, even though he sort of moved on from Python a bit and is doing stuff in Rust. He mentions a set of recordings of videos that Armin did. Um, one's called Dismantling Jinja and Let's Talk About Templates. Some of these are from PyCon presentations. This whole sort of series. And it's definitely a person who's thought a lot about design patterns and architecture. And again, these are very, very popular projects that are out there and, and very common for people to suggest, hey, if you want to look at how to structure code and how to architect a project. One of the things that I think is kind of cool about this book and, and using the word architecture is that they reference this idea that how do architecture students or architects learn how to do what they do? Well, they look at lots and lots and lots of buildings. And that's really their main way of, you know, kind of learning that process. And sometimes in software, that isn't as common. You know, we spend so much time on, on fundamentals and the basics and, you know, what's happening now and, and kind of new and shiny stuff. But if you really want to learn how to structure projects, it really, it's probably one of your better uses of time is to take a step back and eyeball what other people have done successfully. And these are some great resources to get you going. Have you looked at these books before, Christopher? I haven't. I did mention John Osterhout's book, uh, Philosophy of Software Design, back in yeah, episode 176. Uh, big fan. And it's the bigger picture stuff and talks about, you know, the ideas of how to get the right levels of abstraction and, you know, how to how to think about those things. On his site, I haven't read it myself, but he mentions The Art of Readable Code by Dustin Boswell and Trevor Foucher, and he's a fan of that. Um, he says it's slightly lower level, but is in conjunction with the same uh, sort of philosophy of his book. It, it, there's very, very little out there is really what it comes down to. And, and so many developers are self-taught, right? And even if you go through formal process, you're often self-taught before you get there, which is complicated because you've got all these habits that are established, right? Like, you know, often when I talk to programmers, it's really, really common to find out, you know, they, they started when they were, you know, young teenagers or around that age. So even if you do go to school for it, you might have almost 10 years under your belt before they start trying to formalize it. Yeah. And then depending on the program you go through, right? Like, I did a computer engineering degree with a specialty in software, and I took one course in architecture in that entire time, right? So That's what I was thinking. Almost five years of school, and it was one course in architecture. And about half of that was things like 
how to use tools that just don't exist anymore that were like one of those code generative things. And, you know, what I learned from it is don't use code generative tools. Uh, <laughs> so like it just even informal education, this isn't something that we spend a lot of time with. A- and interestingly, I find when I talk with folks who are experienced in it, yeah. most of them have come to the same conclusions. Like there is a body of knowledge here. It just hasn't been formalized, right? Like there isn't an argument. No, no one's saying, oh yes, you should have thousand line functions. That's a good idea. Like nobody yeah. says that, right? So so there's there's definitely a, a common um, a thinking about this in the industry, but folks who are new to it, or, you know, if you've been writing, you know, three or 400 line programs, how you get from that to managing 10,000 lines, it's a big step and there's not a lot out there. Yeah. You know, at risk of sounding like that guy from Harvard who always mentions he's from Harvard, I'm writing a book right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, you are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been interacting with some of my early review, uh, readers and uh, it's been fantastic because I get feedback and that's great and all the rest of it. But uh, several of the conversations I've been having with folks have been exactly these kinds of conversations, right? They're, they're like, okay, so when should I have an app in Django and when should I have two apps in Django? And apps in Django are just like modules, right? They're slightly special, yeah, yeah. but they're modules, right? And so the fundamental question really comes down to this, how do I structure it? And when, when do I, when, you know, how do I think about it? And, and quite or frankly... should things be separate? Exactly. <laughs> should things be together? And, yeah. and, and some of it comes out of experience, like you said, staring at an awful lot of buildings. And some of it comes down to the fact of being willing to refactor because what you think is the right approach at the beginning... It, it will become evident eventually that maybe it wasn't and you might have to change it, right? So there, there's uh, there's both knowledge there and sort of a humbleness of uh, going back and changing and fixing as you go as well and, and finding the balance between them. Yeah. I had this really great conversation this week with the guys from Sorcery, um, Brendan and Nick. They're going to be on the show shortly. Um, but we were talking about code review and it's, you know, interesting. We t- you know, we discussed like how they developed their their way of doing it inside their own organization. And then as they added team members, that changed a lot. And then I kind of got to this point where I'm like, well, what about the solo developer? (laughs) You know, like, what do you, what do you do? They're working on a tool that kind of uses LLMs in a way to help with that. Like not so much the generation of code, but to like look at your code and then like make suggestions and you can kind of like balance ideas off of it. This sort of like a assistant or pair programmer kind of idea. Um, which I think is kind of interesting. And it, I think it'll be intriguing to see what kind of stuff it comes up with as far as architecturally and, and those kinds of stuff, what you can sort of feed into its knowledge. But yeah, it'll it's an interesting time. And I definitely think this is, again, going back to the beginning of the show, like just thinking about like, okay, you know, reading code. I used to have a question there. I asked like, you know, what's what's code that you think is really well-written that people could learn from just by, you know, reading it and going out in GitHub and so forth. But I love that these are in this book format and it's sort of curated for you, which I think is really powerful. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It connects and continues some of the conversation this week about the structure and design of software. The video course is titled Design and Guidance, Object-Oriented Programming in Python. It's the third part of a series about object-oriented programming in Python. So depending on your background level, you can pick where it makes the most sense to jump in. The courses are based on a pair of written tutorials by Leodanas Pozo Ramos. And the video series is by my co-host, Christopher Trudeau. In the course, you'll learn about 
the object-oriented approach of Python versus other languages, cases in which you shouldn't use classes in Python, alternatives to inheritance and structuring your code, and the SOLID principles for improving your code. SOLID is an acronym for five principles that you should use when thinking about object-oriented code. Again, this course is the third in a three-part series. The first is an introduction to class syntax, where you can learn how to write a class and use its attributes and methods. Part two is about inheritance and class internals. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections, and you get code examples for the techniques shown. All RealPython courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. So what do you got next? All right. So I've got an article or actually a bunch. It's just a mess. Let's just call it a mess and be done with it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, All right. Ready to dig in. <laughs> the internet's involved. So, uh, you know, a, sp- a spoiler alert, it's all going to be uh, calm and uh, everything's going to work out fine. So uh, this is kind of an ongoing story that's been uh, unfolding as we go along. And it started out with a blog post by Miguel Grinberg, and it's titled, We Have to Talk About Flask. The article talks about the Flask 3.0 and parallel WorkZug 3.0 releases and the fact that they weren't backwards compatible with earlier releases. The change impacted Flask Login, which is a popular library which is dependent on a URL decode call that's no longer present in the current version of WorkSug. So Miguel discusses the fact that this isn't an isolated occurrence and comments that he felt this happens with almost every major release number. He talks about the Flask debug environment variable as an example. So in versions prior to 1.0, this flag indicated whether you were in debug mode or not. And then in 1.0, you were encouraged to switch to Flask Env instead. And then 2.2, Flask Env was deprecated and everyone was told to go back to Flask Debug. And then in 2.3, Flask Env was taken out completely. So this seems to be a bit of a pattern in the Flask space. So a few days after this blog post, uh, Armin Ronecker, who's one of the originators of Flask, tweeted in support of Miguel's arguments, saying he wished he had properly communicated backward compatibility as a core value to the community when he passed on the torch. He also then tweeted that he fully supports the devs of Flask and that they're doing a good job and he's not trying to interfere, that he just, you know, he learned something and would would have done it differently, you know, 2020 hindsight kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and of course, the internet took all this in stride and everyone was kind and there were puppies. There weren't any uh, flamethrowers? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so back in our reality, uh, Miguel got quite a lot of pushback. Uh, Twitter blew up a bit. Uh, my favorite comment was, this is why I use Django. Um, but that's kind of like the Coke. <laughs> that's that's right, kind of like yourself the, on the back there. Yeah, that, that's, that's the Coke drinker finding it funny when the Pepsi drinker's hair catches on fire from the fireworks. Now, there's a dated reference. Go look that one up, oh, kiddies. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, anyhow, uh, Miguel followed up on his post with another post. Uh, he opened that with a statement which read, uh, he highly appreciates the work that the Flask team does, and he has a lot of respect for them. He comments that he understands that they're volunteers and they often face difficult decisions. Further, he didn't mean the post as an attack on anyone, just that it's a problem Flask users face. 
The follow-up posts addressed the feedback from the community, and there seems to be a lot of confusion about things like whether or not Flask follows semantic versioning or not, yeah, and thus whether it was acceptable to have breaking changes in 3.0. And it's one of those things, like, like I, I never stopped to think about it. It's like if you'd asked me yesterday, I would have said Python uses semantic versioning, and technically it doesn't. We do breaking changes in minor build numbers. It just looks like it uses semantic versioning because it's major dot minor, right? Yeah. But we deprecate stuff in dot 12 and dot 13 and we're going to rip stuff out in dot 14. Like this is... So there's this implication there that isn't necessarily well communicated based on the version number. So Miguel's point is that this particular straw, which made this particular camel's back a bit creaky, is just the latest. And there are other breaking changes that haven't happened on major version numbers. So not surprisingly, some people didn't read through his entire first article uh, and they just, you know... The headlines are all you got to read, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they went and got their torches and joined the other villagers. So yeah. um, others complained that this was more Flask Login's fault for not being responsive enough and not putting an upper bound on their dependency. And then, and of course, it's always funny when somebody says, but they're volunteers. And then someone else says, yeah, but those over those volunteers over there, it's their fault. Get them, right? Like, so right. anyway. I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm a Django guy. Uh, I think this is representative of a much deeper occurrence in the coding community. It goes beyond Flask. Uh, people use open using open source libraries have expectations, and those expectations might be different from the priorities of the folks doing the work. Yeah. None of the libraries I maintain have enough users that I've ever been screamed at, but I've had random strangers be rather insistent on what features should be added next and by when, and... You know, <laughs> great. Fork it yourself. If I like it, I'll take the PR, right? Yeah. So it's it's a bit of a fuss. It's a bit of a mess. There's It's an interesting read, and you can sort of see the back and forth uh, over uh, Twitter and over uh, Hacker News discussions and, and with the, the blog posts. Uh, so you've got dogs. Do you have any in this fight? <laughs> I was just thinking that's the best response. Go fork yourself. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> fork it yourself. That that the yes, the, the it is very important in that sentence. <laughs> I I don't though, you know how much I love talking about visualization libraries. You know, Flask is a super common used dependency within those, uh, you know, instead of writing it themselves. What I did notice that there was some mention about the dash library and how they had, you know, done their own fork to basically avoid this problem, um, which was, I thought was kind of interesting. And I agree that this is a, a quote unquote free product, open source tool. And so your expectations are going to be varied and should be taken with a certain amount of time. This, this work is volunteer. It's kind of a bummer, you know, because there, there are organizations that I've mentioned, you know, over time that are trying to bring funding to open source projects and help with it so that companies can get, you know, if they're using tools like that, if, if that's their background, that they can support the pro programs that support open source and hopefully, you know, get these maintainers, you know, some kind of funding for the the work that they do, which is really powerful. And I'm guessing Flask hasn't really landed in, in that. Uh, one of the things I mentioned, you know, episode 18, uh, again, the conversation I had with Armin, I had asked him this question about, would you have done anything differently, you know, now that 10 years have passed 
would you have done something different about how you did the Flash project? Because he sounded like he had kind of regrets in some ways about certain things. And he kind of answered, no, I, I probably would have done it the same way. And then we started to talk about something else. And then he came back. He's like, hey, remember that question <laughs> that you said? Do I have anything? Would I have done anything differently? He he said that is he would have done the handoff differently, that he would have tried to instill culture and things about the project. It was a very interesting answer. I don't know. It was one of the more emotional, like sort of like conversations I've had with somebody, you know, not like full on out sort of things, but just like this person sort of expressing how they feel about this extremely popular project and, you know, how they feel about it now and how things have moved on from it. And so we, we talked about a lot of interesting stuff in that conversation, but I thought that part was really interesting because he had very, very strong opinions and also time adds this sort of wisdom about how to do certain things. And I feel like that's kind of what he was trying to do in his Twitter post. Of course, that always comes across weird. And I, I that's one of the things about all of this stuff in written form comes across so much harsher depending on how you're reading it and the attitude you're bringing with it if you have your picture work with you or not. Um, and so it's one of the things I like about podcasts is like there can be a little more nuance depending on the podcaster. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that I, I kind of enjoy that. So I have a link to that and I'll include it. It has the time code even so you can go right to that moment if you're interested in checking it out. Hence why I do chapters. The, the other aspect of this too is, uh, you know, the internet's this weird echo chamber thing, right? Yeah. I, I had a friend of mine who used to work for uh, Mozilla and was deep in the development of Firefox. And Firefox, they're, you know, it's well-funded, open-source, paying programmers, all the rest of that kind of good stuff. And, yeah. you know, they, could, they do that through sponsorship and all that kind of good thing. And inevitably, any decision they made about anything, there was an outrage, right? Like, how dare you? What What would... Like, I still see posts to this day complaining about how they changed the structure of plugins. Mm -hmm. And they did that, like, six or seven years ago. Like, get over yourself. Um, but, <laughs> but I'm still mad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, like, Firefox, they've got all sorts of... Because they give you the option, and they, you can turn it off, unlike most other browsers, but they've got all this telemetry information in there. So they know what is working and what's not working. Right. And they're able to run ex experiments. And in fact, they do turn that on and it's something you can uh, volunteer to do. I'll take your experiments and all this kind of stuff. So they've got all this data. And so there were changes that essentially were like helping 90% of the users out there. But there was that 1% that was screaming their head off. Right. And particularly if you were hanging out in developer-oriented forums that was all you ever saw, right? Yeah. Um, and then and then because it's an echo chamber, everybody assumes it's cause and effect. Oh, well, you know why people aren't using Firefox anymore? Because of the thing that is that I'm angry about, right? The fact that Chrome or <laughs> has Google's marketing behind it, or that Edge is comes with the operating system. Yeah, that's not why, right? Um, and so like you get this weird little thing where those folks who are all screaming at the top of their lungs are all reinforcing and they all agree with each other. And so you get these corners and it often is a tempest in a teapot and and the vast majority of people who are using these tools, A, don't even know that the fight's going on and two, don't really care. Right. So, you know, that's unfortunately it's just a sort of a side effect of of the internet. And and to your point about, you know, text 
uh, and the lack of ability to interpret it uh, and the tone of it. Yeah, nuance. <laughs> that just fuels that fire, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can take, you know, it's it's probably the easiest form to take something out of context. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you uh, mentioned that the, there's a Hacker News thing on it. And oh my gosh, like talk about, it immediately starts about with, you know, semantic versioning and what quote unquote is allowed. Like there's some kind of loss in open source software about that sort of stuff. (laughs) It's really interesting, you know, just kind of like seeing how, and then all these luminary names keep getting added in. And, and I really feel for the people that are you know working on this project. I, I, yes, it's really difficult when there are unresponsive other dependencies and so you kind of think to yourself, well, what are the ways that you could just bring that in yourself? And then does that break it in a different way? You know, like there's all these kinds of weird angles to it. And, you know, <laughs> Miguel makes a certain amount of income based upon all these tutorials that he does. And so that that I can kind of see that, that that stuff's all broken. And that's kind of a problem because he is the, di- the direct line of support. They're not contacting people from Flask. These individual learning developers, they're, they're looking at him and saying, hey, your thing doesn't work. Yep. And it's like, well, okay, but this changed. And, and you know, and then you get into the whole like, oh, you should pin everything. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in I, virtual environments. And, and I agree with that to a certain point. But like, the problem with that is like, when you type pip install, it's going to grab the late, latest thing unless you even understand that functionality. And do you want to teach all of that right now? It's, it's a whole other thing. So I, I mean, there's a lot of bloodshed on all sides yeah, of this, this thing. Yeah. And so I feel kind of bad about it. And I, it, it's also, I don't have a, a dog in the fight either. I'm just sort of watching from the sidelines and sort of shaking my head and you know wanting things to be a little more civil. But I'm, I'm kind of with you, like, <laughs> on the sense that it's one of the things I really dig about Django. <laughs> it's, uh, there's a login system built in. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other fight. <laughs> I have a project, and I got very excited initially because it said it was from Michael Herman, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's the guy from you know own Real Python." And oh no, it's a different Michael Herman. <laughs> um, it's somebody with two ends. Uh, so Michael's project is called Selenium Python Helium. The project's literally called Helium, but the point behind it is the subtitle, which is writeless Selenium code. He called it Helium because it's basically like Selenium Python, but lighter. You know, the idea is that it's an API, but at a much higher level. Get it, Helium. <laughs> I was really impressed with it. I installed it and just started playing with it in a virtual environment and started doing REPL commands with it. And it was really fun to use, which I, I don't think I had that experience with Selenium initially. Usually you got to be worrying about HTML IDs and paths and CSS selectors and identifying all kinds of web page elements. And Helium does a lot of that sort of automatically for you. And it, it, if it can find things that are sort of what you as a user would see as visible labels, it, it sort of grabs a lot of that stuff for you. So the scripts are going to be much shorter than typical Selenium scripts. You can just pip install it to a virtual environment. It installs the Gecko driver and the Chrome driver, so the web driver management stuff uh, built in. So you can run it on Firefox or run it uh, using Chrome, which is nice. The commands are really quick, you know, like once you've imported it, 
you can start underscore Firefox and then as a parameter, you know, put the string that you want it to go to that you would normally put into the URL bar. Same thing with start Chrome. If it's currently the, you know, looking at a particular empty field, like say you went to google.com, you can say just write and the text string in there, it's going to put it right into the current field. You can say click and just put the name of the button. Same thing with go to a new web address. So it's it's really slick. And there's a, a good set of tutorials for it. At the very end of it, just simple kill underscore browser to, to end it. He mentions a couple things like it, it handles iframes better and, and window management. Implicit sort of waiting. Helium default waits 10 seconds for elements to appear on certain pages in order to make sure that it's clicking appropriate things. He also has explicit weights built into it. The project kind of interesting history. He he originally developed it back in 2013 when he was working for a Polish IT startup. And that company unfortunately shut down at the end of 2019. And he felt it would be a shame if this project disappeared. So he modernized it, kind of spruced it up and made it open source. Um, so thanks, Michael. I think this is a great tool and it excites me more about sort of automating web things um, by having a, a little simpler API and way of doing it. Yeah, I, years ago I was at a startup and uh, we were doing a lot of Selenium stuff for our automated testing and we ended up building an internal tool that was very similar to this. Okay. And it was it was for the same it was same reason, right? Like it was just a oh, every time I need to test that that happens, I need to make these five calls in Selenium. So let's wrap that in a function. And so you know, looking through I haven't played with the library myself, but looking through as to what it provides, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, that I know exactly why that exists. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been there done that. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a, it, yeah, it looks like a useful little tool. Nice. So what's your project? My project this week is called PyFiglet, and it's by Peter Waller. If you're familiar with the Figlet command, this is a Python port of the same thing. If you're not familiar with Figlet, well, let me introduce you. Uh, it's a tool that takes a string and outputs ASCII art block letter text of whatever you typed in. Nice. So th this being a non-visual medium, it's a little less fun to talk about, but there's some neat stuff here. There's over a dozen fonts available. You can even write your own and pass it to the tool. Uh, one of my favorite actually is called Poison, and it actually looks like the letters are dripping. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Good old ASCII art. <laughs> yeah, so the, the PyFiglet version doesn't require Figlet to be installed. It's a pure Python piece, and the joy of that is you can easily include this kind of funky output in your own projects. The source code page has an FAQ, which includes deep questions like, why? Why? Uh, and in case you're interested, the answer was he was bored. Uh, so <laughs> Yeah, the second line, really bored. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I became aware of this tool because it's used inside of one of my favorite TUI libraries, which is Aschematics. And recently I was writing a massive regression test for the book that took about 10 minutes to run. And uh, the tests themselves were spitting by rather quickly. So it was kind of hard to eyeball where, you know, what stage it was in. Yeah, And I remembered the Aschematics thing and has the funky little font stuff inside of it. And that's where I dug in a little deeper and went, oh, it uses PyFiglet. So then I installed that in with my test suite and started printing out the name of each suite as the class spun up. So I got the larger block letters, make it nice and easy for my old eyes with big print to go by on the screen. And I can kind of get a sense as to where the testing is, even if it's moving quickly. So strange little corner case of a tool, but fun. And, uh, you know, check it out. Go play with some ASCII art. All right. And it's just fun to say figlet. It is. That it is. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Thanks, Christopher, for bringing all these projects and articles and blog posts this week again. Always fun. All right. Talk to you soon. And don't forget, I'm reminding you once again to try the Site24-7 30-day free trial to identify and debug your application performance issues like a pro. Happy monitoring. That's S-I-T-E-24-X-7.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.